Hello and welcome to the one year anniversary of Sidecar Stories. How exciting is that? We haven't hit it every week, as I would have preferred to, ultimately, but we've done a pretty good job. I'm proud we've made it this far. Um, I honestly didn't know we were going to get through the first book, much less well on our way through the third, as we are today. For anybody who doesn't know what this is, hi, I'm Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And we are in the midst of our front-to-back read-through of the Harry Potter series. We are in book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban. And today we're going to be reading chapters 15 and 16. That's right, we are back to uh, two chapter weeks. I'm going to say plural because I'm optimistic. That's what I'm going to do. Now, Rachel, you know how this works. We're going to uh, go back and... Take a quick review of what we found out last week, and then we are going to proceed. As usual, and I'll give you another reminder of this later, and as Rachel and Cassidy, I'm sure, both know, I'm going to remind you of this a lot. Um, if you've got anything you want to talk about, anything you want to ask me, because I know I know Harry, Harry Potter fairly well at this point. This is my second uh, time reading through this out loud. I've read through it before. Um, go ahead and put it in chat. I love talking to uh, you guys about this, and especially Rachel, because Rachel asks excellent questions. Um, and I am looking forward to talking to you tonight. So, let's get into our review, shall we? Last week, book three, obviously, uh, chapter 14. Let me get to my uh, section here really quick. Hold on. There he is. There he is. Look at that lad there. Okay. So, um, I mean, truly, Hermione and Ron still are a bit at odds. Um, but we are in an odd predicament. For the first time, Ron is getting more attention than Harry. Why is this? Because at the end of the chapter previous, end of chapter 13, Ron had been seemingly attacked by Sirius Black himself. Ron wakes up in the middle of the night, finds Sirius Black standing over him with a knife, and uh, he finds that his, uh, his his bed curtains have been slashed. And people are constantly asking him questions and wanting to know what happened, and he gets to tell the story over and over again, but he admits he's a bit confused. When Ron woke up and saw him, Ron yelled, he screamed, and Sirius Black ran away. If he's here to kill Harry, why not just move on to the next bed? You know? He's clearly a, a very, uh, a reasonably powerful wizard, and he clearly has no qualms about killing other uh, uh, innocent people, as we've seen in the past, you know, all the stories that we've heard about him. I'm gonna sneeze, just a moment. Excuse me. It's getting to that time of year where I'm gonna have to start taking my allergy meds again. So why, why, why didn't he stick around? Why didn't he make a bit more of an effort? We don't find out. Um, Hagrid invites them down to his place. 
And uh, the first thing we see when they arrive is Buckbeak. Buckbeak is stretched out on Hagrid's bed. Let me see if I can find that picture. Oh, that's right. I got a picture of the hut. Couldn't find a, a decent one of him on the bed itself. Um, there's a hearing coming up for uh, Buckbeak. It's his case against, you know, Lucius Malfoy, or excuse me, uh, Draco Malfoy, if you guys remember. Um, Malfoy provoked Buckbeak, and as a result, Malfoy got injured by Buckbeak. And now, of course, Lucius Malfoy, that's uh, Draco's father, got all in a tizzy about it, and Draco's milking it, just, just uh, you know, making darn sure everybody knows how, what he went through, what a trauma he went through. Bunch of nonsense. Um... But uh, ultimately, that's not why Hagrid called him down. Hagrid wants to talk about Hermione. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, Austin, welcome, bud. Good to see you in here. Good to see you in chat. Um, uh, as we uh, as we know, uh, there there was an altercation between Scabbers the Rat and Crookshanks the Cat. It didn't end well for Scabbers. So. Of course, Ron is furious at Hermione. Hermione is actually angry at Ron, too, because, you know, she doesn't believe that Crookshanks is capable of such horrible things. And uh, she believes that Ron has kind of just had always had a grudge for no reason against Crookshanks. But Hagrid makes it pretty clear he's disappointed in Ron and Harry. And I think he's got a good point. This is one of my, my favorite kind of lessons from the whole series. Uh... When, you know, out of all the lessons where people are talking directly to somebody else about something and really trying to impart some wisdom, this is one of my favorites. Um, Hagrid makes it pretty clear that uh, ultimately it's more important that they they uh, have the good friend in Hermione that she's always been uh, than to get, you know, all stirred up over broomsticks and rats. Um, I believe the quote exactly is, uh, uh, I gotta tell you, I thought you two would value your friend more than broomsticks or rats. And he's exactly right. You know, there are, there are uh, things that'll come between friends. Ultimately, this is more important. Uh, and Hermione really has been a great friend. We talked about that a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. That in her own way, she did a great job being a friend when that broomstick came in for Harry. Okay. It also seems that she was very upset when uh, Black nearly stabbed Ron. So Hagrid encourages them. They really ought to go talk to Hermione again. Let's see. What else? What else is going on? Uh, Harry, Harry tricks uh, Hermione a bit. He's only been talking to Ron about this. He's going to sneak back into um, Hogsmeade. He's not supposed to. He's not supposed to leave the castle. He's been he's been banned from from uh, going into Hogsmeade. He's going to do it anyway. He's going to take the invisibility cloak this time. And that's what he does. Alright, let me find my next picture here. Okay. Honeydukes. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I got the wrong picture here. This is not the season that it is. I just also think that this is beautiful enough to keep. So, welcome to Hogsmeade. Uh, but, wintertime. 
It's really supposed to be a uh, spring, I believe. So Harry sneaks into um, into Hogsmeade and has a bit of an encounter with Malfoy, in which he, uh, as an invisible, you know, as a specter, they're up near the Shrieking Shack, and so Harry, with his invi invisibility cloak, I did it again, um, makes a pretty good ghost, right? So he slings some mud at the back of Malfoy's head. He really gives Crabbe and Goyle the runaround, but it slips. The cloak slips and Malfoy catches a glimpse of Harry's face. He takes off running. Ron says, you better get back to the castle, Harry. Harry sprints back uh, to the tunnel that gets him from underneath Honeydukes back into the castle. He's sprinting. He gets to the castle. He wonders if he's gotten there in time. And who should meet him but Snape. Snape brings him down to his office where they have uh, a bit of a discussion. Malfoy's been up to see me with a strange story, says Snape. Harry tries to uh, pass it off, but Snape is, obviously, he's always kind of headed out for Harry, but uh, makes it pretty clear that, you know, everyone from the Minister of Magic, uh, the, the head of the school, all the teachers, they're trying to keep him safe, keep Harry safe. And, uh, Harry has just gone about, you know, flagrantly disobeying the rules. He doesn't seem to care about anyone but himself, says Snape. And it seems there's no proof but uh, of, of Harry's, you know, misdeeds. But they get into a quick conversation about Harry's father. Now, Snape knew Harry's father. Um, Harry has been under the impression that his father somehow saved Snape, even though they were you know, enemies of the of the same type that Harry and Malfoy are. Uh, Snape and Harry's father were enemies, and it, Harry's under the impression that he saved Snape at some point. Snape clarifies here, he didn't save him from something random or anonymous. What he saved Snape from was his own practical joke. So, you know, um, we know that Harry's father, James, James had a... Uh, kind of a posse of, of friends that he went around with, and they played a joke on him that went too far. And that's the only thing that uh, he saved, that James saved Snape from, and it was only to save his own skin, his own reputation. He would have been expelled. Harry's not pleased about this. Unfortunately, Snape, in the course of the conversation, gets his hands on the Marauder's Map. Um, it does an excellent job of insulting him. Uh, Mooney, Prongs, Padfoot, and Wormtail have all uh, said their piece as to his greasy hair and, uh, you know, what a slimeball he is uh, in a fury after being unable to interpret the secrets of the map. Snape calls in Lupin. Lupin does a decent job, job covering and gets Harry out of there and holds on to the map but he does express some disappointment. He says something else. This is another one of those direct uh, conversations. He says, your parents gave their lives to keep you alive, Harry. A poor way to repay them, gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. It's harsh, but it's true. that's about where we end.
So, at your leave, I'm going to get into Chapter 15, the Quidditch Final, on this, the one-year anniversary of Sidecar Stories. I'm very excited. Rachel, thanks for sticking with me. Anybody else who's listening back there at home, thank you very much. Austin, thank you for joining me on this momentous occasion. Let's do Chapter 15. One thing I should note is that uh, at the very, very end of the last chapter, Hermione comes up and uh, she informs Ron and Harry that Hagrid lost his case. Buckbeak is going to be executed. So, here we go. Chapter 15, the Quidditch final. He, he sent me this. Hermione said, holding out the letter. Harry took it. The parchment was damp, and enormous teardrops had smudged the ink so badly in places it was very difficult to read. Dear Hermione, we lost. I'm allowed to bring him back to Hogwarts. Execution date to be fixed. Beaky has enjoyed London. I won't forget all the help you gave us. Hagrid. They can't do this, said Harry. They can't. Buckbeak isn't dangerous. Malfoy's dad frightened the committee into it, said Hermione, wiping her eyes. You know what he's like. They're a bunch of tottery old fools, and they were scared. There'll be an appeal, though. There always is. Only I can't see any hope. Nothing will have changed. Yeah, it will, said Ron fiercely. You won't have to do all the work alone this time, Hermione. I'll help. Oh, Ron! Hermione flung her arms around Ron's neck and broke down completely. Ron, looking quite terrified, patted her very awkwardly on the top of the head. Finally, Hermione drew away. Ron, I'm, I'm really, really sorry about Scabbers, she sobbed. Oh, well, he was old said Ron, looking thoroughly relieved that she had let go of him. And he was a bit useless. You never know. Mum and Dad might get me an owl now. Hey, Mama. Chapter break. <whistles> the safety measures imposed on the students since Black's second break-in made it impossible for Harry, Ron, and Hermione to go and visit Hagrid in the evenings. Their only chance of talking to him was during care of magical creatures lessons. He seemed numb with shock at the verdict. It's all my fault. I got all tongue-tied. They was all sitting there in black robes and I kept dropping my notes and forgetting all them dates you looked up for me, Hermione, and then uh, Lucius Malfoy stood up and said his bit and the community... The committee just did exactly what he told them. But there's still the appeal, said Ron fiercely. Don't give up yet. We're still working on it. They were walking back up to the castle with the rest of the class. Ahead, they could see Malfoy, who was walking with Crabbe and Goyle, and kept looking back, laughing derisively. 
No good, Ron, said Hagrid sadly as they reached the castle steps. That committee's in Lucius Malfoy's pocket. I'm just going to make sure the rest of Beaky's time is the happiest he's ever had. I owe him that. Hagrid turned around and hurried back toward his cabin, his face buried in his handkerchief. Look at him blubber. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle had been standing just inside the castle doors, listening. Have you ever seen anything quite as pathetic? said Malfoy. And he's supposed to be our teacher. Harry and Ron both made furious moves toward Malfoy, but Hermione got there first. Smack! She had slapped Malfoy across the face with all the strength she could muster. Malfoy staggered. Harry, Ron, Crabbe, and Goyle stood flabbergasted as Hermione raised her hand again. Don't you dare call Hagrid pathetic, you foul, you evil! Hermione, said Ron weakly, and he tried to grab her hand as she swung it back. Get off, Ron! Hermione pulled out her wand. Malfoy stepped backward. Crabbe and Goyle looked at him for instructions, thoroughly bewildered. Come on, Malfoy muttered. In a moment, all three of them had disappeared into the passageway to the dungeons. Hermione, Ron said again, sounding both stunned and impressed. Harry, you'd better beat him in the Quidditch final, Hermione said shrilly. You just better had, because I can't stand it if Slytherin wins. We're due in charms said Ron, still goggling at Hermione. We'd better go. They hurried up the marble staircase toward Professor Flitwick's classroom. You're late, boys, said Professor Flitwick, reprovingly, as Harry opened the classroom door. Come along, quickie. One's out. We're experimenting with cheering charms today. We've already divided into pairs. Harry and Ron hurried to a desk at the back and opened their bags. Ron looked behind him. Where's Hermione gone? Harry looked around, too. Hermione hadn't entered the classroom, yet Harry knew she had been right next to them when they had opened the door. That's weird, said Harry, staring at Ron. Maybe... maybe she went to the bathroom or something? But Hermione didn't turn up at all. She could have done with the cheering charm in it, too, said Ron, as the class left for lunch, all grinning broadly. The cheering charms had left them with a feeling of great contentment. Hermione wasn't at lunch, either. By the time they had finished their apple pie, the after-effects of the cheering charms were wearing off, and Harry and Ron had started to get slightly worried. You don't think Malfoy did something to her? Ron said anxiously as they hurried upstairs toward Gryffindor Tower. They passed the security trolls, gave the fat lady the password, Fliberty Gibbet, and scrambled through the portrait hole into the common room. I, why, I can say Fliberty Gibbet the first time through, but not Invisibility Cloak. Hermione was sitting at a table, fast asleep, her head resting on an open arithmancy book. They went to sit down on either side of her. Harry prodded her awake. What? said Hermione, 
waking with a start and staring wildly around. Is it time to go? Which, which lesson have we got now? Divination, but that's not for another twenty minutes, said Harry. Hermione, why didn't you come to charms? What? Oh no! Hermione squeaked. I forgot to go to charms. But how could you forget, said Harry. You were with us right until we were outside the classroom. I don't believe it, Hermione wailed. Was Professor Flitwick angry? Oh, it was Malfoy. I was thinking about him and I lost track of things. You know what, Hermione, said Ron. <clears throat> said Ron, looking down at the enormous arithmancy book Hermione had been using as a pillow. I reckon you're cracking up. You're trying to do too much. No, I'm not, said Hermione, brushing her hair out of her eyes and staring hopelessly around for her bag. I just made a mistake, that's all. i better go and see Professor Flitwick and say sorry. I'll see you in divination. Hermione joined them at the foot of the ladder to Professor Trelawney's classroom twenty minutes later, looking extremely harassed. I can't believe I missed cheering charms. I bet they come up in our exams. Professor Flitwick hinted they might. Together they climbed the ladder into this dim, stifling tower room. Glowing on every little table was a crystal ball full of pearly white mist. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down together at the same rickety table. I thought we weren't starting crystal balls until next term, Ron muttered, casting a wary eye around for Professor Trelawney, in case she was lurking nearby. Don't complain. This means that we've finished palmistry, Harry muttered back. I was getting sick of her flinching every time she looked at my hands. Good day to you said the familiar, misty voice, and Professor Trelawney made her usual dramatic entrance out of the shadows. Parvati and Lavender quivered with excitement, their faces lit by the milky glow of their crystal ball. I have decided to introduce the crystal ball a little earlier than I had planned, said Professor Trelawney, sitting with her back to the fire and gazing around. The fates have informed me that your examination in June will concern the orb, and I am anxious to give you sufficient practice. Hermione snorted. Well, honestly, the fates have informed her. Who sets the exam? She does. What an amazing prediction, she said, not troubling to keep her voice low. Harry and Ron choked back laughs. It was hard to tell whether Professor Trelawney had heard them, as her face was hidden in shadow. She continued, however, as though she had not. Crystal gazing is a particularly refined art, she said dreamily. I do not expect any of you to see when first you peer into the orb's infinite depths. We shall start by practicing relaxing the conscious mind, and it we shall start by practicing relaxing the conscious mind and external eyes. Ron began to snigger uncontrollably and had to stuff his fist in his mouth to stifle the noise, so as to clear the inner eye and the superconscious. Perhaps, if we are lucky, some of you 
We'll see before the end of the class. And so they began. Harry, at least, felt extremely foolish, staring blankly at the crystal ball, trying to keep his mind empty when thoughts such as, This is stupid, kept drifting across it. It didn't help that Ron kept breaking into silent giggles and Hermione kept tutting. Have you seen anything yet? Harry asked them after a quarter of an hour's quiet crystal gazing. Yeah, there's a burn on this table, said Ron, pointing. Somebody spilled their candle. This is such a waste of time, Hermione hissed. I could be practicing something useful. I could be catching up on cheering charms. Professor Trelawney rustled past. Would anyone like me to help them to interpret the shadowy portents within their orb? She murmured over the clinking of her bangles. I don't need help, Ron whispered. It's obvious what this means. There's going to be loads of fog tonight. Both Harry and Hermione burst out laughing. Now, really? said Professor Trelawney as everyone's heads turned in their direction. Parvati and Lavender were looking scandalized. You are disturbing the clairvoyant vibrations. She approached their table and peered into their crystal ball. Harry felt his heart sinking. He knew what was coming. There is something here. Professor Trelawney whispered, lowering her face to the ball, so that it was reflected twice in her huge glasses. Something moving. But what is it? Harry was prepared to bet everything he owned, including his firebolt, that it wasn't good news, whatever it was. And sure enough. <gasps> My dear! Professor Trelawney breathed gazing up at Harry. It is here, plainer than ever before, my dear, stalking toward you, growing ever closer. The grip- Oh, for goodness sake, said Hermione loudly. Not that ridiculous grim again. Professor Trelawney raised her enormous eyes to Hermione's face. Parvati whispered something to Lavender, and they both glared at Hermione too. Professor Trelawney stood up, surveying Hermione with unmistakable anger. I'm sorry to say that from the moment you have arrived in this class, my dear, it has been apparent that you do not have what the noble art of divination requires. Indeed, I don't remember ever meeting a student whose mind was so hopelessly mundane. There was a moment's silence. Then... Fine, said Hermione suddenly, getting up and cramming Unfogging the Future back into her bag. Fine, she repeated, swinging the bag over her shoulder and almost knocking Ron off his chair. I give up! I'm leaving! And to the whole class's amazement, Hermione strode over to the, the trap door, kicked it open, and climbed down the ladder out of sight. It took a few minutes for the class to settle down again. Professor Trelawney seemed to have forgotten all about the Grimm. 
She turned abruptly from Harry and Ron's table, breathing rather heavily as she tugged her gauzy shawl more closely to her. Oh, said Lavender suddenly, making everyone start. Ooh, Professor Trelawney, I just remembered you saw her leaving, didn't you? Didn't you, Professor, around Easter? One of our numbers will leave us forever. You said it ages ago, Professor. Professor Trelawney gave her a dewy smile. Yes, my dear, I did indeed know that Miss Granger would be leaving us. One hopes, however, that one might have mistaken the signs. The inner eye can be a burden, you know. Lavender and Parvati were deeply impressed. I moved over so that Professor Trelawney could join their table instead. Some day Hermione's having, eh? Ron muttered to Harry, looking odd. Yeah. Harry glanced into the crystal ball, but saw nothing but swirling white mist. Had Professor Trelawney really seen the Grimm again? Would he? The last thing he needed was another near-fatal accident, with the Quidditch final drawing ever nearer. Chapter break. The Easter holidays were not exactly relaxing. The third years had never had so much homework. Neville Longbottom seemed close to a nervous collapse, and he wasn't the only one. You call this a holiday? Seamus Finnegan roared at the common room one afternoon. The exams are ages away. What are they playing at? But nobody had as much to do as Hermione. Even without divination, she was taking more subjects than anybody else. She was usually last to leave the common room at night, first to arrive at the library the next morning. She had shadows like lupins under her eyes and seemed constantly close to tears. Ron had taken over responsibility for Buckbeak's appeal. When he wasn't doing his own work, he was poring over enormously thick volumes with names like The Handbook of Hippogriff Psychology and Foul or Foul, that is, F-O-W-L or F-O-U-L, a study of hippogriff brutality. He was so absorbed, he even forgot to be horrible to Crookshanks. Austin says, I love the fact that even among wizards and witches, divination is seen as a joke. Yeah, they, they certainly do harsh its mellow a bit. Um, I think my favorite words about it are McGonagall's, but I don't remember them right now. Harry, meanwhile, had to fit in his homework around Quidditch practice every day. Not to mention endless discussions of tactics with Woods. The Gryffindor-Slytherin match would take place on the first Saturday after the Easter holidays. Slytherin was leading the tournament by exactly 200 points. This meant, as Wood constantly reminded his team, that they needed to win the match by more than that amount to win the cup. This also meant that the burden of winning largely fell upon Harry because capturing the snitch was worth 150 points. So you must catch it only if we're more than 50 points up, Wood told Harry constantly. Only if we're more than 50 points up, Harry. Or we win the match, but we lose the cup. Have you got that? You've got that, haven't you? You, you? you must only catch the snitch if we're... I know, Oliver, Harry yelled. The whole of Gryffindor House was becoming obsessed with the upcoming match. 
Gryffindor hadn't won the Quidditch Cup since the legendary Charlie Weasley, Ron's second oldest brother, had been seeker. But Harry doubted whether any of them, even Wood, wanted to win the match as much as he did. The enmity between Harry and Malfoy was at its highest point ever. Malfoy was still smarting about the mud-throwing incident in Hogsmeade, and was even more furious that Harry had somehow wormed his way out of punishment. Harry hadn't forgotten Malfoy's attempt to sabotage him in the match against Ravenclaw, but it was the matter of Buckbeak that made him most determined to beat Malfoy in front of the entire school. Never in anyone's memory had a match approached in such a highly charged atmosphere. By the time the holidays were over, tensions between the two teams and their houses were at the breaking point. A number of small scuffles broke out in the corridors, culminating in a nasty incident in which a Gryffindor fourth-year and a Slytherin sixth-year ended up in the hospital wing, with leeks sprouting out of their ears. L-E-E-K-S. Harry was having a particularly bad time of it. He couldn't walk to class without Slytherin sticking out their legs and trying to trip him up. Crab and Goyle kept popping up whenever he went. Excuse me. Crab and Goyle kept popping up wherever he went, and slouching away, looking disappointed when they saw him surrounded by people. Wood had given instructions that Harry should be accompanied everywhere, in case the Slytherins tried to put him out of action. The whole of Gryffindor House took up the challenge enthusiastically, so that it was impossible for Harry to get to classes on time because he was surrounded by a vast, chattering crowd. Harry was more concerned for his firebolt safety than his own. When he wasn't flying it, he locked it securely in his trunk, and frequently dashed back up to Gryffindor Tower at break times to check that it was still there. All the usual pursuits were abandoned in the Gryffindor common room the night before the match. Even Hermione had put down her books. I can't work. I can't concentrate, she said nervously. There was a great deal of noise. Fred and George Weasley were dealing with the pressure by being louder and more exuberant than ever. Oliver Wood was crouched over a model of a Quidditch field in the corner, prodding little figures across it with his wand and muttering to himself. Angelica, Alicia, and Katie were laughing at Fred and George's jokes. Harry was sitting with Ron and Hermione, removed from the center of things, trying not to think about the next day. Because every time he did, he had the horrible sensation that something very large was fighting to get out of his stomach. You're going to be fine, Hermione told him, though she looked positively terrified. You've got a firebolt, said Ron. Yeah, said Harry, his stomach writhing. It came as a relief when Wood suddenly stood up and yelled, Team! Bed! I've just had a horrible thought. If anybody listening to me right now has perfect pitch, I probably drive them nuts. Every time the chapter break comes up, I apologize. Harry slept badly. First, he dreamed that he had overslept, and that Wood was yelling, Where are you? We had to use Neville instead! Then he dreamed that Malfoy and the rest of the Slytherin team arrived for the match riding dragons. He was flying at breakneck speed, 
trying to avoid a spurt of flames from Malfoy's steed's mouth, when he realized he had forgotten his firebolt. He fell through the air and woke with a start. It was a few seconds before Harry remembered the match hadn't taken place yet. That he was safe in bed and that the Slytherin team definitely wouldn't be allowed to play on dragons. He was feeling very thirsty. Quietly as he could, he got out of his four-poster and went to pour himself some water from the silver jug beneath the window. The grounds were still and quiet. No breath of wind disturbed the treetops in the forbidden forest. The Whomping Willow was motionless and innocent-looking. It looked as though the conditions for the match would be perfect. Harry set down his goblet and was about to turn back to his bed when something caught his eye. An animal of some kind was prowling across the silvery lawn. Harry dashed to his bedside table, snatched up his glasses, and put them on, then hurried back to the window. It couldn't be the Grim. Not now. Not right before the match. He peered out at the grounds again, and after a minute's frantic searching, he spotted it. It was skirting the edge of the forest now. It wasn't the Grim at all. It was a cat. Harry clutched the window ledge in relief, and he recognized the bottle brush tail. It was only Crookshanks. Or was it only Crookshanks? Harry squinted, pressing his nose flat against the glass. Crookshanks seemed to have come to a halt. Harry was sure he could see something else moving in the shadowy trees, too. And just then, emerged. A gigantic, shaggy, black dog moving stealthily across the lawn, Crookshanks trotting at its side. Harry stared. What did this mean? If Crookshanks could see the dog as well, how could it be an omen of Harry's death? Harry! What? Nope, I'm Harry. Ron! Harry hissed. Ron, wake up! Huh? I, I need you to tell me if you can see something. So dark, Harry, Ron muttered thickly. What's you on about? Down here. Harry looked quickly back out of the window. Crookshanks and the dog had vanished. Harry climbed onto the window sill to look right down into the shadows of the castle, but they weren't there. Where are they gone? A loud snore told him Ron had fallen asleep again. <whistles> Harry and the rest of the Gryffindor team entered the Great Hall the next day to enormous applause. Harry couldn't help grinning broadly as he saw that both the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff tables were applauding them too. The Slytherin table hissed loudly as they passed. Harry noticed that Malfoy looked even paler than usual. Wood spent the whole breakfast urging his team to eat, while touching nothing himself. Then he hurried them off to the field before anyone else had finished, so that they could get an idea of the conditions. As they left the Great Hall, everyone applauded again. Good luck, Harry, called Cho. Harry felt himself blushing. Okay, no wind to speak of. 
the sun's a bit bright, that could impair your vision, watch out for it. The ground's fairly hard, good, that'll give us a fast kickoff. Wood paced the field, staring around with the team behind him. Finally, as they saw the front doors of the castle open in the distance and the rest of the school spilling onto the lawn. Oh, I accidentally added an extra as. Finally, they saw the front doors of the castle open in the distance and the rest of the school spilling onto the lawn. Locker rooms, said Wood tersely. None of them spoke as they changed into their scarlet robes. Harry wondered if they were feeling like he was, as though he'd eaten something extremely wriggly for breakfast. In what seemed like no time at all, Wood was saying, Okay, it's time. Let's go. They walked out onto the field to a tidal wave of applause. Three quarters of the crowd were wearing scarlet rosettes, waving flags with Gryffindor line, uh, with the Gryffindor lion upon them, or brandishing banners with slogans like Go Gryffindor! and Lions for the Cup. Behind the Slytherin goalposts, however, two hundred people were wearing green. The Silver Serpent of Slytherin glittered on their flags, and Professor Snape sat in the very front row, wearing green like everyone else, and a very grim smile. "'And here are the Gryffindors!' yelled Lee Jordan, who was acting as commentator as usual. "'Potter, Bell, Johnson, Spinnet, Weasley, Weasley, and Wood! Widely acknowledged as the best team Hogwarts has seen in a good few years!' Lee's comments were drowned out by a tide of boos from the Slytherin end. And here come the Slytherin team, led by Captain Flint. He's made some changes in the lineup, and it seems he's going for size rather than skill. More boos from the Slytherin crowd. Harry, however, thought Lee had a point. Malfoy was easily the smallest person on the Slytherin team. The rest of them were enormous. Captains! Shake hands! said Madame Hooch. Flint and Wood approached each other and grasped each other's hands very tightly. It looked as though each was trying to break the other's fingers. Mount your brooms, said Madame Hooch. Three, two, one! The sound of her whistle was lost in the roar of the crowd as four, uh, fourteen brooms rose into the sky. Harry felt his hair fly back off his forehead. His nerves left him in the thrill of the flight. He glanced around, saw Malfoy on his tail, and sped off in search of the snitch. And it's Gryffindor in possession. Alicia Spinnet of Gryffindor with the Quaffle, heading straight for the Slytherin goalposts. Looking good, Alicia. Oh, no! Uh, Quaffle intercepted by Warrington. Uh, Warrington of Slytherin tearing up the field. Wham! Nice bludger work there by George Weasley. Warrington drops the Quaffle. It's caught by... Uh, Johnson! Gryffindor back in possession. Come on, Angelina! Nice swerve around Montague. Duck, Angelina, there's a bludger! She scores! 10-0 to Gryffindor! Angelina punched the air as she soared around the end of the field. The sea of scarlet below was screaming its delight. Ouch! Angelina was nearly thrown from her broom as Marcus Flint went smashing into her. Sorry, said Flint as the crowd below booed. Sorry, didn't see ya. A moment later, Fred Weasley chucked his beater's club at the back of Flint's head. Flint's nose smashed into the handle of his broom and began to bleed. That will do! shrieked Madame Hooch, zooming between them. 
Penalty shot to Gryffindor for an unprovoked attack on their chaser. Penalty shot to Slytherin for deliberate damage to their chaser. Come off it, miss, howled Fred, but Madame Hooch blew her whistle and Alicia flew forward to take the penalty. Come on, Alicia, yelled Lee into the silence as they descended. Oh, come on, Alicia, yelled Lee into the silence that had descended on the crowd. Yes, she's beaten the keeper, 20-0 to Gryffindor. Harry turned the firebolt sharply to watch Flint still bleeding profusely. Oh. Harry turned the firebolt sharply to watch Flint, still bleeding profusely, fly forward to take the Slytherin penalty. Wood was still hovering in front of the Gryffindor goalposts, his jaw clenched. Of course, Wood's a superb keeper, Lee Jordan told the crowd as Flint waited for Madame Hooch's whistle. Superb. Very difficult to pass. Very difficult indeed. Yes! I don't believe it! He saved it! Relieved, Harry zoomed away, gazing around for the snitch, but still making sure he caught every word of Lee's commentary. It was essential that he hold Malfoy off the snitch until Gryffindor was more than fifty points up. Gryffindor in possession. No, Slytherin in possession. No, Gryffindor back in possession. And it's Katie Bell. Katie Bell for, Griffin, for Gryffindor with the quaffle. Is she streaking up the field? That was deliberate! Montague, a Slytherin chaser, had swerved in front of Katie, and instead of seizing the quaffle, had grabbed her head. Katie cartwheeled into the air, managed to stay on her broom, but dropped the quaffle. Madame Hooch's whistle rang out again as she soared over to Montague and began shouting at him. A minute later, Katie had put up another penalty past a Slytherin, Slytherin keeper. Thirty-zero! Take that, you dirty, cheating... Children, if you come to commentate in an unbiased way, I'm telling it like it is, Professor. Harry gave a huge jolt of excitement. He had seen the snitch. It was shimmering at the foot of one of the Gryffindor goalposts, but he mustn't catch it yet. And if Malfoy saw it. Faking a look of sudden concentration, Harry pulled his firebolt around and sped toward the Gryffindor end. It worked. Malfoy went herring after him, clearly thinking Harry had seen the snitch there. One of the bludgers came streaking past Harry's right ear, Hit the gigantic Slytherin beater. Oh, hit by the gigantic Slytherin beater, Derek. And again, the second bludger grazed Harry's elbow. The other beater, Bull, was closing in. Harry had a fleeting glimpse of Bull and Derek zooming toward him, clubs raised. He turned the firebolt upward at the last second, and Bull and Derek collided with a sickening crunch. Ha ha ha! Yelled Lee Jordan as the Slytherin beaters lurched away from each other clutching their heads. Too bad, boys. You'll de You'll need to get up earlier than that if you want to beat a firebolt. And it's Gryffindor in possession again, as Aunt John Quaffle flint alongside her. Poke him in the eye, Angelina. It was a joke, Professor. It was a joke. Oh, no. Uh, flint in possession. Flint flying toward the Gryffindor goalposts. Come on now, Wood. Save! But Flint had scored. There was an eruption of cheers from the Slytherin end and Lee swore so badly that Professor McGonagall tried to tug the magical megaphone away from him. I'm sorry, Professor, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. So, Gryffindor in the lead. Thirty points to ten. And Gryffindor in possession. It was turning into the dirtiest game of Quidditch Harry had ever played in. Enraged that Gryffindor had such an early lead, 
The Slytherins were rapidly rest I gotta take a moment. Enraged that Gryffindor had taken such an early lead, the Slytherins were rapidly resorting to any means to take the quaffle. Bowl hit Alicia with his club and tried to say he thought it was a bludger. George Weasley elbowed Bowl in the face in retaliation. Madame Hooch awarded both teams penalties, and Wood pulled off another spectacular save, making the score 40-10 to Gryffindor. The snitch had disappeared again. Malfoy was still keeping close to Harry as he soared over the match, looking around for it, once Gryffindor was fifty points ahead. Katie scored. Fifty-ten. Fred and George Weasley were swooping around her, clubs raised, in case of any Slytherins thinking of revenge. Bowl and Derek took advantage of Fred and George's absence to aim both bludgers at Wood. They caught him in the stomach, one after the other, and he rolled over in midair, clutching his broom, completely winded. Madame Hooch was beside herself. You do not attack the keeper unless the quaffle is within the scoring area, she shrieked at Bowl and Derek. Gryffindor penalty! And Angelina scored. 60-10. Moments later, Fred Weasley pelted a bludger at Warrington, knocking the quaffle out of his hands. Alicia seized it and put it through the Slytherin goal. 70-10. The Gryffindor crowd below was screaming itself hoarse. Gryffindor was 60 points in the lead, and if Harry caught the snitch now, the cup was theirs. Harry could feel almost... Harry could almost feel hundreds of eyes following him as he soared around the field, high above the rest of the game, with Malfoy speeding along behind him. And he saw it. The snitch was sparkling twenty feet above him. Harry put on a huge burst of speed. The wind was roaring in his ears. He stretched out his hand, but suddenly... The firebolt was slowing down. Horrified, he looked around. Malfoy had thrown himself forward, grabbed hold of the firebolt's tail, and was pulling it back. You! Harry was angry enough to hit Malfoy, but couldn't reach. Malfoy was panting with the effort of holding onto the firebolt, but his eyes were sparkling maliciously. He had achieved what he'd wanted to. The snitch had disappeared again. Penalty! Penalty to Gryffindor have never seen such tactics! Madame Hooch screeched, shooting up to where Malfoy was sliding back onto his Nimbus 2001. You cheating scum! Lee Jordan was howling into the megaphone, dancing out of McGonagall's reach. You filthy cheating b Professor McGonagall didn't even bother to tell him off. She was actually shaking her finger in Malfoy's direction. Her hat had fallen off, and she too was shouting furiously. Alicia took Gryffindor's penalty, but she was so angry, she missed by several feet. The Gryffindor team was losing concentration, and the Slytherins, delighted by Malfoy's foul on Harry, were being spurred on to greater heights. Slytherin in possession. Slytherin heading for the goal. Montague scores! Lee groaned. 70-20 to Gryffindor. Harry was now marking Malfoy so closely that the knees kept... Harry was now marking Malfoy so closely that their knees kept hitting each other. Harry wasn't going to let Malfoy anywhere near the snitch. Get out of it, Harry! Malfoy yelled in frustration as he tried to turn and found Harry blocking him. 
Angelina Johnson gets the qualifier for Gryffindor. Come on, Angelina! Come on! Harry looked around. Every single Slytherin player apart from Malfoy was streaking up the pitch toward Angelina, including the Slytherin keeper. They were all going to block her. Harry wheeled the firebolt around, bent so low he was flying flat along the handle, and kicked it forward. Like a bullet, he shot toward the Slytherins. They scattered as the firebolt zoomed toward them. Angelina's way was clear. She scores! She scores! Gryffindor leads by 80 points to 20. Harry, who had almost pelted headlong into the stands, skidded to a halt in midair, reversed, and zoomed back into the middle of the field. And then he saw something that made his heart stand still. Malfoy was diving, a look of triumph on his face. There... A few feet above the grass below was a tiny golden glimmer. Harry urged the firebolt downward, but Malfoy was miles ahead. Go! 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 Harry urged his broom. He was gaining on Malfoy. Harry flattened himself to the broom handle as Bull sent a bludger at him. He was at Malfoy's ankle. He was level. Harry threw himself forward, taking both hands off his broom. He knocked Malfoy's arm out of the way and... Yes! He pulled out of his dive, his hand in the air, and the stadium exploded. Harry soared above the crowd, an odd, ringing in his ears. The tiny golden ball was held tight in his fist, beating its wings hopelessly against his fingers. Then Wood was speeding toward him, half-blinded by tears. He seized Harry around the neck and sobbed unrestrainedly in his, into his shoulder. Harry felt two large thumps as Fred and George hit them. Then Angelina's, Alicia's, and Katie's voices... We've won the cup! We've won the cup! Tangled together in a many-armed hug, the Gryffindor team sank, yelling hoarsely back to the earth. Wave upon wave of crimson supporters was pouring over the barricades onto the field. Hands were raining down on their backs. Harry had a confused impression of noise and bodies pressing in on him. Then he and the rest of the team were hoisted onto the shoulders of the crowd. Thrust into the light, he saw Hagrid, plastered with crimson rosettes. You beat him, Harry! You beat him! Wait until I tell Buckbeak! There was Percy, jumping up and down like a maniac, all dignity forgotten. Professor McGonagall was sobbing harder even than Wood, wiping her eyes with an enormous Gryffindor flag. And there, fighting their way toward Harry, were Ron and Hermione. Words failed them. They simply beamed as Harry was borne toward the stands, where Dumbledore stood waiting with the enormous Quidditch cup. If only there had been a Dementor around. As a sobbing wood passed Harry the cup, as he lifted it into the air, Harry felt he could have produced the world's best Patronus. And that is the end of the chapter. Now, we're going to be back with another one very soon. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to let you guys hang out right here. But I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to be right back. Now, as usual, or as used to be usual at least, um, go ahead and put any questions, comments, concerns into chat. I would love to talk about them as soon as I get back. Uh, if not, I'll probably just ramble about something briefly, and then we will move on to Chapter 16. But, uh, good stream so far. I'm enjoying myself. I hope you guys are as well. What a win. What a win. 
Okay. Going to be about five minutes. I will be right back. I'm back. How's it going, everybody? So, in chat, Austin has said, I still think they should make a Netflix show called Quidditch about the professional world of Quidditch and other magical sports. I think that would be interesting. Um, like a 30 for 30 kind of thing um, where they go through... Uh, I guess uh, I'll make that a question rather than a statement. Are you picturing kind of a 30 for 30 kind of thing where they go through sort of a, you know, an imagined history of, of uh, some significant events in Quidditch or um, like uh, a more of a narrative thing or just sort of a, you know, a discussion of, you know, how Rowling imagined these sports would go. And also, because you're new here, um, I do have a bit of a delay set on. It's supposed to help not make the stream so choppy. Typically, it only works for my audio rather than my video. That's okay. I do this mostly for the audio anyway. Um, but uh, once you type something, it's going to take a sec for it to get to me. But I will talk about it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to uh, lot to discuss with the, the various magical sports. I would be interested to know what other ones there are, because I am sure there are other ones involving dragons. You know, one of the <laughs> one of the most dangerous creatures that we know of, uh, uh, just in terms of raw physical power, is the bull. And what have we done? We made a whole sport out of riding it. So I can't imagine there's not some sort of dragon rodeo equivalent. I would be shocked. I'd be shocked if there wasn't. But I'd like to know more about magical sports. Um, and i got to imagine there are sports that involve more magic as well. Um, because, you know, this one, there's the flying element. But beyond that, it's a pretty analog, uh, it's a pretty analog system. You, you've got a ball, you throw it through a hoop, um, and you have to chase something. But, you know, nothing about that is, you know, there's, there's not a huge... Um, you know, magical component to it. You don't need to have a large spell knowledge base. I want to know what, what sport Hermione would be great at. That's what I think would be great. And yeah, I don't know if it would be... You could even do like imitations of muggle sports, but you're not allowed to be on the field. You have to do the whole thing with spells. So if suddenly your your quarterback shimmers out of existence because your uh, illusion magic has has uh, slipped up a bit, you get a penalty. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. It just feels like there could be more... Uh, inherently magical sports. I imagine that there would be. You got a bunch of kids running around doing spells for the first time. Of course, there's going to be some some nonsense games come up, uh, that they come up with. Uh, and Austin's saying it would be narrative. So a narrative one um, with uh, with Quidditch kind of as the the focal point. So uh, a, a sports movie. Remember the Titans with Quidditch. That could be very cool. Or a, a Netflix show, rather, of course. I'm, all the good ideas are in the shows right now, anyway. Except for American Animals. That was a fantastic movie. And it probably wouldn't have made a great show. Anyway. Yeah, I think there's a lot to dig into with Quidditch. I think it would make a great focal point. Um, it would be a, a really interesting way to get back into the, the you know, Harry Potter sort of cinematic universe without all the that we're going to be covering, you know, uh, you know the, the the biggest, darkest events of the world. You make it about Quidditch, and you still get to experience that. You get to, you know, learn a, more about how different people live in this world. 
but don't necessarily have to expect that we're going to, you know, fight Grindelwald at the end. It's an interesting idea. I like it. I'm a fan. It, it really, it would help to set expectations a little better than I think we have so far. Um, from what I've been seeing about all the uh, Crimes of Grindelwald stuff, people have had a challenging time managing their expectations. That's okay. I think it happens a lot. I have to go grab another water. I'll be right back. I'm right back. Now it appears, as it often does, that our uh, our stream rate has gotten a bit choppy. I've always held that uh, the sidecar that you have boarded here with me is uh, it's the one from Aristocats that um, those two dogs drive a haystack. Uh, dr you know, drive into a haystack and they carry the haystack off with them. I've always maintained that that is what the technological level we're operating at is. We are a like a World War One motorcycle with a sidecar driven by two dogs with a haystack in the back. So bear with me, I guess, would be the end of that sentence. All right, now, who's ready to get into chapter 16? Because <laughs> I think I am. We're at 715. That's a good number. It's a good number we're hitting right now. Excellent. I believe the next chapter is a bit shorter than this one. Um, but I think this is going excellently. Again, for anybody who's watching, anybody who doesn't know how this works, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And we are in the midst of our start to finish read through of the Harry Potter series. We're in book three, Prisoner of Azkaban. And right now, uh, Gryffindor House has just won the Quidditch Cup. It's very exciting. Um, oh, I should review a bit from the last chapter. Um, so, it's going to be very quick. Uh, we get a bit more discussion about the Buckbeak case. Uh, Buckbeak has to go in for uh, a hearing. Uh, wait a second. Sorry, just a moment. Okay, so uh, Buckbeak had a hearing. It didn't go well, and he is to be executed. The date hasn't been set yet, but uh, obviously uh, Hagrid's pretty torn up about this. Rachel, go ahead and let me know how the uh, the, the stream quality is looking. I'll see if there's anything I can do on my end. Um, uh, we go back to divination after a, a challenging day for Hermione, in which she uh, slaps Malfoy pretty good, um, and then misses Charms class, only to show up in divination and be told that she has the most mundane mind that Trelawney has ever encountered. So she just drops the class. Now, this is Hermione. That's shocking that Hermione would drop a class, but uh, she was pretty well provoked, I think, by Trelawney. The tension between Slytherin House and Gryffindor House is enormous as the match is coming up. Um, 
a lot of people have different things riding on it. You know, uh, for Oliver Wood, this is the last chance he'll have to win the Quidditch Cup. Uh, he hasn't done it yet, and this is his last chance. Um, for uh, for Hermione, it's about, I think, beating Malfoy for some of the crappy things he said about Hagrid. Um, even Percy Weasley has money on this game, so it's important that they win. Even uh, Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff have kind of come over to the Gryffindor side here. They start the match. It's an intense match. They've uh, Slytherin has made some odd personnel changeouts, and uh, it's the the dirtiest it's the dirtiest game of Quidditch that Harry's ever played in. But they win. They do it. They succeed. Harry is able to get the the uh, the snitch at the appropriate time after Gryffindor is up by enough points, and they win the House Cup, or they they win the Quidditch Cup. So that's where we're going to start off of that uh, celebration moment. Um, again, if you've got anything you'd like to discuss, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to talk about it, and we will. Um, either pause in the chapter if I find a good break place or I'll hold off and we'll talk about it afterward. Y'all ready for this? Okay. Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction. Harry's euphoria at winning the Quidditch Cup lasted at least a week. Even the weather seemed to be celebrating as June approached. The days became cloudless and sultry, and all anybody felt like doing was strolling onto the grounds and flopping onto the grass, with several pints of iced pumpkin juice, perhaps displaying a casual game of oh, perhaps playing a casual game of gobstones, or watching the giant squid propel itself dreamily across the surface of the lake. But they couldn't. Exams were nearly upon them, and instead of lazing around outside, the students were forced to remain inside the castle, trying to bully their brains into concentrating while enticing wafts of summer air drifted in through the windows. Even Fred and George's, even Fred and George Weasley had been spotted working. They were about to take their OWLs, ordinary wizarding levels. Percy was getting ready to take his NEWTs, nastily exhausting wizarding tests. The highest qualification Hogwarts offered. offered. As Percy hoped to enter the Ministry of Magic, he needed top grades. He was becoming increasingly edgy and gave very severe punishments to anyone who disturbed the quiet of the common room in the evenings. In fact, the only person who seemed more anxious than Percy was Hermione. Rachel's asking, are you doing anything specific for the anniversary? Um, I might be. We'll talk about it at the end. I might be. Don't you worry about it. Harry and Ron had given up asking her how she was managing to attend several classes at once, but they couldn't restrain themselves when they saw the exam schedules she had drawn up for herself. The first column read, Monday, 9 o'clock, Arithmancy. Nine o'clock, Transfiguration. Lunch. One o'clock, Charms. One o'clock, Ancient Runes. Mmm, Hermione, Ron said cautiously, because she was liable to explode when interrupted these days. 
Uh, are you sure that you've copied down these times right? What? Snapped Hermione, picking up the exam schedule and examining it. Yes, yes, of course I have. Is there any point in asking how you're going to sit for two exams at once? Said Harry. No, said Hermione shortly. Have either of you seen my copy of Numerology and Grammatica? Oh, yeah, I, I borrowed it for a bit of bedtime reading, said Ron, but very quietly. Hermione started shifting heaps of parchment around on her table, looking for the book. Just then, there was a rustle at the window. A Hedwig fluttered through it. A note clutched tight in her beak. It's from Hagrid, said Harry, ripping the note open. Buckbeak's appeal. It's set for the sixth. That's the day that we finish our exams, said Hermione, still looking everywhere for her arithmancy book. And they're coming up here to do it, said Harry, still reading from the letter. Someone from the Ministry of Magic and an executioner. Hermione looked up, startled. They're bringing the executioner to the appeal? That sounds as though they've already decided. Yeah. It does, said Harry slowly. They can't, Ron howled. I've spent ages reading up on stuff for him. They can't just ignore it all. But Harry had a horrible feeling that the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures had its mind made up by Mr. Malfoy. Draco, who had been noticeably subdued during the Gryffindor's triumph in the Quidditch final, seemed to reign some of his old swagger over the next few days. Excuse me, that was a regain. From sneering comments Harry overheard, Malfoy was certain Buckbeak was going to be executed. and seemed thoroughly pleased with himself for bringing it about. It was all Harry could do to stop himself imitating Hermione and hitting Malfoy in the face on these occasions. The worst thing of all was that they had no time or opportunity to go see Hagrid, because of the strict new security measures and Harry didn't dare retrieve his invisibility cloak from below the one-eyed witch. Exam week began, and an unnatural hush fell over the castle. The third years emerged from transfiguration at lunchtime on Monday, limp and ashen-faced, comparing results and bemoaning the difficulty of the tasks they had been set, which included turning a teapot into a tortoise. Oh boy. Which included turning a teapot into a tortoise. Hermione irritated the, f the rest by fussing about how her tortoise had looked more like a turtle, which was the least of everyone else's worries. Mine still had a spout for a tail. What a nightmare. But the tortoise is supposed to breathe steam. It still had a pillow pattern shell. You think that'll count against me? Then, after a hasty lunch, it was straight back upstairs for the charms exam. Hermione had been right. Professor Flitwick did indeed test them on cheering charms. Harry slightly overdid it out of nerves, and Ron, who was partnered with him, ended up in fits of hysterical laughter and had to be led away to a quiet room for an hour after he was ready, before he was ready to perform the charm himself. After dinner, the students hurried back to their common rooms, not to relax, but to start care of magical creatures, potions, and astronomy. 
Harry presided over the care of magical creatures exam. Hagrid presided over the care of magical creatures exam the following morning, with a very preoccupied air indeed. His heart didn't seem to be in it at all. He had provided a large tub of fresh flobberworms for the class, and had told them that to pass the test, their flobberworms had to still be alive at the end of one hour. As flobberworms flourished best, if left to their own devices, it was the easiest exam any of them had ever taken, and also gave Harry, Ron, and Hermione plenty of opportunity to speak with Hagrid. Beaky's getting a, a bit depressed, Hagrid told them, bending low on the pretense of checking Harry's flobberworm. Been cooped up for too long, but still. We'll know day after tomorrow. One way or another. They had potions that afternoon, which was an unqualified disaster. Try as Harry might, he couldn't get his confusing concoction to thicken, and Snape, standing watch with an air of vindictive pleasure, scribbled something that looked suspiciously like a zero onto his notes before moving away. Then came astronomy at midnight, up on the tallest tower. History of magic on Wednesday morning, in which Harry scribbled everything Florian Fortescue had ever told him about medieval witch hunts, while wishing he could have had one of Fortescue's choco-nut Sundays with him in the stifling classroom. Wednesday afternoon meant herbology. In the greenhouses, under a baking hot sun, then back to the common room once more with sunburnt necks, thinking longingly of this time the next day, when it would all be over. Their second-to-last exam, on Thursday morning, was Defense Against the Dark Arts. Professor Lupin had compiled the most unusual exam any of them had ever taken, a sort of obstacle course outside in the sun, where they had to wade across a deep paddling pool containing a grindylow, cross a series of potholes full of redcaps, squish their way across a patch of marsh while ignoring misleading directions from a hinky-punk, and climb into an old trunk and battle with a new boggart. Excellent, Harry, Lupin muttered as Harry climbed out of the trunk, grinning. Full marks. Flushed with his success, Harry hung around to watch Ron and Hermione. Ron did very well until he reached the hinky-punk, which was successfully confusing him into sinking waist-high into the quagmire. Hermione did everything perfectly until she reached the trunk with the bogart in it. After about a minute inside it, she burst out again, screaming, Hermione, said Lupin, startled. What's the matter? P P Professor McGonagall? Hermione gasped, pointing into the trunk. She, she said I failed everything. It took a little while to calm Hermione down. When at last she had retained a grip on herself, she, Harry, and Ron went back to the castle. Ron was still slightly inclined to laugh at Hermione's bogart, but... An argument was averted by the sight by the sight that met them at the top of the steps. Cornelius Fudge, sweating slightly in his pinstriped cloak, was standing there staring at the grounds. He started at the sight of Harry. Um, uh, hello there, Harry, he said. I just had a, an exam, I expect. Uh, nearly finished? Yes said Harry, 
Hermione and Ron, not being on speaking terms with the Minister of Magic, hovered awkwardly in the background. Uh, lovely day, said Fudge, casting an eye over the lake. Uh, pity, pity. He sighed deeply and looked down at Harry. I'm here on a, uh, an unpleasant mission, Harry. The uh, uh, Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures required a witness to the execution of a mad hippogriff. As I needed to visit Hogwarts to check on the black situation, I was uh, asked to step in. Does that mean that the appeal's already happened? Ron interrupted, stepping forward. Uh, no, no, it's uh, um, uh, scheduled for this afternoon, said Fudge, looking curiously at Ron. Well, then you might not have to witness an execution after all, said Ron stoutly. The hippogriff might get off. Before Fudge could answer, two wizards came through the castle doors behind him. One was so ancient he appeared to be withering before their very eyes. The other was tall and strapping, with a thin black mustache. Harry gathered that they were representatives of the Committee for Disposal of Dangerous Creatures, because the very old wizard squinted toward Hagrid's cabin and said in a feeble voice, Dear, dear, I'm getting too old for this. Two o'clock, isn't it, Fudge? The black-moustached man was fingering something in his belt. Harry looked and saw that he was running one broad thumb along the blade of a shining axe. Ron opened his mouth to say something, but Hermione nudged him hard in the ribs and jerked her head toward the entrance hall. "'Why did you stop me?' said Ron angrily as they entered the great hall for lunch. "'Did you see them? They've even got the axe ready. This isn't justice!' Ron, your dad works for the Ministry. You can't go like that to his boss, said Hermione, but she too looked very upset. As long as Hagrid keeps his head this time and argues his case properly, they can't possibly execute Buckbeak. But Harry could tell Hermione didn't really believe what she was saying. All around them, people were talking excitedly as they ate their lunch, happily anticipating the end of the exams that afternoon, but Harry, Ron, and Hermione... Lost in worry about Hagrid and Buckbeak. Join in. Harry's and Ron's last exam was divination. Hermione's muggle studies. They walked up the marble staircase together. Hermione left them on the first floor, and Harry and Ron proceeded all the way up to the seventh, where many of their class were sitting in the spiral staircase to Professor Trelawney's, Professor Trelawney's classroom, trying to cram in a bit of last-minute studying. She's going to be seeing us all separately, Neville informed him as they went to sit down next to him. He had his copy of Unfogging the Future open on his lap, as the pa uh, at the pages devoted to crystal gazing. Have either of you ever seen anything in a crystal ball? He asked them unhappily. Nope, said Ron in an offhand voice. He kept checking his watch. Harry knew he was counting down the time until Buckbeak's appeal started. The line of people outside the classroom shortened very slowly. 
Each person climbed back down the silver ladder, and the rest of the class hissed. What did she say? Was it okay? But they all refused to say. She says that the crystal balls told her that if I tell you, I'll have a horrible accident, squeaked Neville as he clambered down the ladder toward Harry and Ron, who had now reached the landing. <laughs> That's convenient, snorted Ron. You know, I'm starting to think that Hermione was right about her. Excuse me. He jabbed his thumb up toward the trapdoor overhead. She's a right old fraud. Yeah, said Harry, looking at his own watch. It was now two o'clock. I wish she'd hurry up. Parvati came back down the ladder, glowing with pride. She says that I've got all the makings of a true seer, she informed Harry and Ron. I saw loads of stuff. Well, good luck. She hurried off down the spiral staircase toward Lavender. Ronald Weasley, said the familiar misty voice from over their heads. Ron grimaced at Harry and climbed the silver ladder out of sight. Harry was now the only person left to be tested. He settled himself on the floor with his back against the wall, listening to a fly buzzing in the sunny window, his mind across the grounds with Hagrid. Finally, after about twenty minutes, Ron's large feet reappeared on the ladder. How did it go? Harry asked him, standing up. Oh, rubbish, said Ron. I couldn't see a thing, so I made some stuff up. I don't think that she was convinced, though. I'll meet you in the common room, Harry muttered, as Professor Trelawney's voice called, Harry Potter. I love doing that voice. The tower room was hotter than ever before. The curtains were closed, the fire was alight, and the usual sickly scent made Harry cough as he stumbled through the clutter of chairs and tables to where Professor Trelawney sat waiting for him before a large crystal ball. Good day, my dear, she said softly. If you would kindly gaze into the orb. Take your time now, and then tell me what you see within it. Harry bent over the crystal ball and stared. Stared as hard as he could, willing it to show something other than swirling white fog, but nothing happened. Professor Trelawney prompted delicately. What do you see? The heat was overpowering, and his nostrils were stinging with the perfumed smoke wafting from the fire beside them. He thought of what Ron had just said, and decided to pretend. Um, said Harry. A dark shape? Um... What does it resemble? whispered Professor Trelawney. Think now. Harry cast his mind around and landed on Buckbeak. A hippogriff, he said firmly. Indeed, whispered Professor Trelawney, scribbling keenly, scribbling keenly on the parchment perched upon her knees. 
My boy, you may well be seeing the outcome of poor Hagrid's trouble with the Ministry of Magic. Look closer. Does the hippogriff appear to have its head? Yes, said Harry firmly. Are you sure? Professor Trelawney urged him. Are you quite sure, dear? You don't see it writhing on the ground, perhaps, and a, a shadowy figure raising an axe behind it. No, said Harry, starting to feel slightly sick. No blood? No weeping Hagrid? No, said Harry again, wanting more than ever to leave the room in the heat. It looks fine. It's, it's flying away. Professor Trelawney sighed. Well, dear, I, I think we'll leave it there. A little disappointing, but I'm sure that you did your best. Relieved, Harry got up, picked up his bag and turned to go. Then a loud, harsh voice spoke behind him. It will happen tonight! Harry wheeled around. Professor Trelawney had gone rigid in her armchair. Her eyes were unfocused and her mouth sagging. S sorry said Harry. But Professor Trelawney didn't seem to hear him. Her eyes started to roll. Harry stood there in a panic. She looked as though she was about to have some sort of seizure. He hesitated, thinking of running to the hospital wing. And then Professor Trelawney spoke again in the same harsh voice, quite unlike her own. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these twelve years. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever before. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. Professor Trelawney's head fell forward onto her chest. She made a grunting sort of noise. And then, quite suddenly, Professor Trelawney's head snapped up again. I'm so sorry, dear boy, she said dreamily. The heat of the day, you know, I, I drifted off for a moment. Harry stood there, still staring. Is there anything wrong, my dear? You just... you just told me that the Dark Lord is going to rise again. That his servant's going to go back to him. Professor Trelawney looked thoroughly startled. The Dark Lord? He who must not be named, my dear boy, that is hardly something to joke about. Rise again, indeed. <sighs> but you just said it! You said that the Dark Lord... I think you must have dozed off too, dear, said Professor Trelawney. I would certainly not presume to predict anything quite as far-fetched as that. Harry climbed back down the ladder to the spiral staircase, wondering, had he just heard Professor Trelawney made a real prediction? Or had that been her idea of an impressive end to the test? Five minutes later, he was dashing past the security trolls outside the entrance to Gryffindor Tower, Professor Trelawney's words still resounding in his head.
People were striding past him in the opposite direction, laughing and joking, headed for the grounds in a bit of long-awaited freedom. By the time he had reached the portrait hall and entered the common room, it was almost deserted. Over in the corner, however, sat Ron and Hermione. <sighs> Professor Trelawney, Harry panted, just told me... But he stopped abruptly at the sight of their faces. But be lost, said Ron weakly. Hagrid's just sent me this. Hagrid's note was dry this time. No tears had splattered it. Yet his hand seemed to have shaken so much as he wrote it that it was hardly legible. Lost appeal. They're going to execute at sunset. Nothing you can do. Don't come down. I don't want you to see it. Hagrid. We've got to go, said Harry at once. He can't just sit there on his own, waiting for the executioner. <sighs> Sunset, though, said Ron, who was staring out of the window in a glazed sort of way. We'd never be allowed. Especially you, Harry. Harry sank his head into his hands, thinking. If only we had the invisibility cloak. Where is it? said Hermione. Harry told him. Nope. Harry told her about leaving it in the passageway, under the one-eyed witch. And if Snape sees me anywhere near there again, I'm in serious trouble, he finished. That's true, said Hermione, getting to her feet. If he sees you, how do you open the witch's hump again? You, you tap it and say descendium, said Harry. But... Hermione didn't wait for the rest of his sentence. She strode across the room, pushed open the fat lady's portrait, and vanished from sight. She hasn't gone to get it, Ron said, staring after her. She had. Hermione returned a quarter of an hour later with the silvery cloak folded carefully under her robes. Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately, said Ron, astounded. First you hit Malfoy, then you walk out on Professor Trelawney. Hermione looked rather flattered. They went down to dinner with everyone else, but did not return to Gryffindor Tower afterward. Harry had the cloak hidden down the front of his robes, he had to keep his arms folded to hide the lump. They skulked into an empty classroom off the entrance hall, listening, though they were sure that it was deserted. They heard a last pair of people hurrying across the hall and a door slamming. Hermione poked her head around the door. <clears throat> okay, she whispered. No one there. Cloak on. Walking very close together so that nobody would see them, they crossed the hall on tiptoe beneath the cloak, and walked down the stone front steps into the grounds. The sun was already sinking below the forbidden forest, gilding the top branches of the trees. They reached Hagrid's cabin and knocked. He was a minute in answering, and when he did, he looked all around for his visitor, 
pale-faced and trembling. "'It's us!' Harry hissed. "'We're wearing the invisibility cloak. Let us in, we can take it off.' "'You shouldn't have come!' Hagrid whispered, but he stood back, and they stepped inside. Hagrid shut the door quickly, and Harry pulled off the cloak. Hagrid was not crying, nor did he throw himself upon their necks. He looked like a man who did not know where he was or what to do. His helplessness was worse to watch than tears. Want some tea? he said. His great hands were shaking as he reached for the kettle. Where is Buckbeak, Hagrid? said Hermione hesitantly. I... I took him outside, said Hagrid, spilling milk all over the table as he filled up the jug. He's tethered in me pumpkin patch. I thought he ought to see the trees and... and smell fresh air, uh, before... Hagrid's hand trembled so violently that the milk jug slipped from his grasp and shattered all over the floor. I'll do it, Hagrid, said Hermione quickly, hurrying over and starting to clean up the mess. There's a, another one in the cupboard, Hagrid said, sitting down and wiping his forehead on his Harry glanced at Ron, who looked back hopelessly. Isn't there anything that anyone can do, Hagrid? Harry asked fiercely, sitting down next to him. A Dumbledore. He's tried, said Hagrid. Got no power to overrule the committee. He told them Buckbeak is all right, but they're scared. You know what Lucius Malfoy's like? Threaten him, I expect, and the executioner, McNair. He's an old pal of Malfoy's, but it'll be quick and clean, and I'll be beside him. Hagrid swallowed. His eyes were darting all over the cabin as though looking for some shred of hope or comfort. Dumbledore's gonna come down while it, uh, while it happens. Wrote to me this morning, said he wants to, uh, to be with me. Great man, Dumbledore. Hermione, who had been rummaging in Hagrid's cupboard for an, another milk jug, let out a small, quickly stifled sob straightened up with the new milk jug in her hands, fighting back tears. We'll stay with you too, Hagrid, she began, but Hagrid shook his shaggy head. You're to go back up to the castle. I told you I don't want you watching, and you shouldn't have come down here anyway. If Fudge and Dumbledore catch you without permission, Harry, you'll be in big trouble. Silent tears were now streaming down Hermione's face, but she hid them from Hagrid, bustling around, making tea. Then, as she picked up the milk bottle to pour some into the milk jug, she let out a shriek. Run! I, I don't believe it! It scabbers! Ron gaped at her. What are you talking about? Hermione carried the milk jug over to the table and turned it upside down. With a frantic squeak and much more scrambling to get back inside, Scabbers the Rat came sliding out onto the table. 
Scabbers, said Ron blankly. Scabbers? What are you doing here? He grabbed the struggling rat and held him up to the light. Scabbers looked dreadful. He was thinner than ever. Large tufts of hair had fallen out, leaving wide bald patches, and he writhed in hands as though desperate to free himself. It's okay, Scabbers, said Ron. No cats? There's nothing here to hurt you. Hagrid suddenly stood up, his eyes fixed on the window. His normally ruddy face had gone the color of parchment. They're coming. Harry, Ron, and Hermione whipped around. A group of men was walking down from the distant castle steps. In front was Albus Dumbledore, his silver beard gleaming in the dying sun. Next to him trotted Cornelius Fudge. Behind them came the feeble old committee member and the executioner, McNair. You gotta go, said Hagrid. Every inch of him was trembling. They mustn't find you here. Go now. Ron stuffed scabbers into his pocket and Hermione picked up the cloak. I'll let you out the back way, said Hagrid. They followed him to the door into his back garden. Harry felt strangely unreal, and even more so when he saw Buckbeak a few yards away, tethered to a tree behind Hagrid's pumpkin patch. Buckbeak seemed to know something was happening. He turned his sharp head from side to side and pawed the ground nervously. It's okay, Beaky, said Hagrid softly. It's okay. He turned to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Go on, he said. Get going. But they didn't move. Hagrid, we can't... Well, tell them what really happened. They can't kill him. Go, said Hagrid fiercely. It's bad enough without you lot being in trouble and all. They had no choice. As Hermione threw the cloak over Harry and Ron, they heard voices at the front of the cabin. Hagrid looked at the place where they had just vanished from sight. Go quickly, he said hoarsely. Don't listen. And he strode back into his cabin as someone knocked at the front door. Slowly, in a kind of horrified trance, Harry, Ron, and Hermione set off silently around Hagrid's house. As they reached the other side, the front door closed with a sharp snap. Please, let's hurry, Hermione whispered. I can't stand it. I can't bear it. They started up the sloping lawn toward the castle. The sun was sinking fast now. The sky had turned to a clear, purple-tinged gray, but to the west there was a ruby-red glow. Ron stopped dead. Oh, please, Ron, Hermione began. It's Scabbers. It won't stay put. Ron was bent over, trying to keep Scabbers in his pocket, but the rat was going berserk, squealing madly, twisting and flailing, trying to sink his teeth into Ron's hand. Scabbers, it's me, you idiot, it's Ron, Ron hissed. They heard a door opening behind them in men's voices. Oh, Ron, please, let's move, they're going to do it, Hermione breathed. Okay, Scabbers, you stay put. They walked forward. 
Harry, like Hermione, was trying not to listen to the rumble of voices behind them. Ron stopped again. I can't hold him! Scabbers, shut up! Everyone will hear us! The rat was squealing wildly, but not loudly enough to cover up the sounds drifting from Hagrid's garden. There was a jumble of indistinct male voices. A silence. And then, without warning, the unmistakable swish and thud of an axe. Hermione swayed on the spot. They did it, she whispered to Harry. I don't believe it. They did it. That's the end of chapter 16. (sighs) Heavy. Heavy stuff. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what's going on, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and we've just finished up chapter 16 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. That was an intense pair of chapters to read. Some real excitement, some really high highs in Quidditch, and some really terrible lows at the end of that one. As always, if you've got anything you'd like to discuss from the chapter, go ahead and put it in chat. I would love to talk about it. There's certainly no shortage of things to talk about this uh, this this pair of chapters. Now, really quick, I need to go grab something. Uh, should give you time if you've got anything you want to talk about to put it in chat, but um, we do have... Uh, uh, a special date today, as I've mentioned a number of times. This is the one-year anniversary of Sidecar Stories. I've been doing this for a year. The last Sunday in uh, January of last year was when I started, and at that point I was wondering, was I even going to make it through February? I have. I've made it a full year. We've made it uh, through two, almost three books at this point, and it's been a great, great time all the way through. So, I'll be right back. Just a moment. So, two things. First of all, I have uh, I have something to open here. This is a gift from a fan of the show. You can guess who it was. It was Rachel. Rachel, thank you very much. Now, this is going to be my first ever chocolate frog. I've been to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter a couple of times. 
Um, I have never tried one of these. So I'm very curious. And now we can see, there's the frog. And who have I received but... You're gonna have a hard time seeing it. It's Rowan a Ravenclaw. That's her. This is a good card for me to get. Oh, good lord, look at all that nonsense happening. Okay, this was a good card for me to get because as I've said a number of times, I think if I had been sorted at the appropriate time in my uh, education, I would have ended up being a Ravenclaw. So, uh, this, the founder of my house, boy, can I, can I crinkle that more for you guys? Is that good? Um, just a moment here. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that uh, Rachel's all caught up. This is, after all, her gift. It's important that she's here for this. So I'm going to wait for just a second. And uh, just, uh, again, this was a gift from Rachel. Uh, I received a chocolate frog. And there is a card inside. It is Rowan a Ravenclaw. A little tough to see right now, but... Uh, that's her. That's the lady. I'm going to go ahead and unwrap this before I actually uh, try the chocolate frog. It looks like, based on based on the bottom of it, it looks like it's uh, possibly like a Rice Krispie kind of uh, chocolate, which is my absolute favorite kind. So, well done on all accounts. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize they were going to be uh, like this. Uh, I can't remember what this effect is called. Uh, I've, I've heard it called like holographic before, but uh, essentially if you... Uh, rotate this back and forth the picture that you get of Rowan and Ravenclaw changes up a bit so there's my face going absolutely crazy once again and we're back this says Rowan and Ravenclaw of the four founders of Hogwarts oh one of the four Hog founders of Hogwarts one of the four famous founders of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry Rowan and Ravenclaw was the most brilliant witch of her time the legend has it that a broken heart cause unknown, contributed to her early demise. Her daughter, Helena, the Grey Lady, is the Ravenclaw house ghost. I did not know that. There you have it, folks. Rona Ravenclaw, head of my, uh, my probably house, Ravenclaw. Um, oh, funky. I've always wondered if this was possible. So this is actually a two-way holographic one. So some of them, if you just tilt it back and forth, it changes this one. You tilt it back and forth and up and down, and you get different uh, different effects. I wonder if you can see that. If I hold it too close, it goes crazy. But, uh... oh, yep. Yeah. yeah, you can see it. You can see your hands moving across the bottom there. It's a little tough, but uh, thank you very much. Now, yeah. Rachel, um, that's uh, exactly where I wanted you to land. I, I, I reiterated, so you didn't miss much. Um, that's all right. I want you to know the, the chocolate frog is what I'm doing right now. So chocolate frog, here we are. I'm going to give it a try.
is pretty good. <laughs> I was right. It is, um... <laughs> it's pretty good. Mmm. <laughs> so it was some sort of Rice Krispie, um... Chocolate, essentially. Gave it a real crunch. I would imagine being horrified if I ever had to eat one of the ones that moved. Um, like they did on the train. The, the uh, Hogwarts Express. That would have horrified me. But, as it was, that was very good. And I can see why, or I can see how one would get a lot of those and then eat way too many of them. I certainly would. delicious now one more thing and uh this is uh I'm, I'm excited to start to uh to talk about this i'm gonna start a project you might remember this this is my uh ukrainian iron belly egg now i received this and a letter from hagrid um as part of a ministry of magic um uh, program, uh, sort of a muggle liaison program, uh, to in increase the, uh, the communication and, and the, the cooperation of the magical, the muggle and magical worlds. I appreciate it very much. It seemed like the sort of thing that would never hatch. You know, I didn't know how to, how to treat it or anything, but I've been doing some research. Okay. I've been doing some research and I've, I've bought a, uh, a special magical candle. Just a moment. It's small. It doesn't look like a lot, but this is called a cantrip candle. All right. Now. This isn't just any candle. This candle is laced with spells that I believe are going to allow me to hatch this egg. It's going to take a while. It's probably going to take a few weeks at least, maybe a month or two. I don't know. I've never done this before, but it is my intent. It is my deep wish to hatch this egg. So, uh, go ahead and, uh, you know, tune in later on and we will see what comes of my attempts to hatch my Ukrainian iron belly egg, which I believe initially I named Ike. So we're going to try and hatch Ike. So you can look forward to that in the future. Happy one year anniversary of Sidecar Stories. A fantastic night. Uh, Austin, by the way, says, those are frog bones, not Rice Krispies. Thanks, Austin. That's what I needed to hear about the frog bones. <coughs> yeah, uh, that's exactly why I would have probably gone a little nuts. Um, the ones that moved around and, uh, you know, trying to you know, pop one of those in my mouth and feeling all that crunch. Maybe not so much, but that one, very tasty. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a fantastic night. I'm going to wrap it up here. This is uh, Last Call. If you've got anything you need to talk about, uh, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to discuss it. 
And um, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll join me again in the future um, so we can stay updated on the, uh, the status of our cantrip candle. I'm going to go have to relight it and I'm going to, to keep the, uh, the, uh, the egg over top of it. I probably won't show that, but because it's a, a pretty delicate process, but it's going to be a good time. Rachel, don't you worry. You'll be able to see it. Um, and if not, I will, uh, I will reiterate. This is going to be an ongoing process, of course, with the egg. So uh, you'll be able to keep uh, updated on all this. I promise. Don't you worry. This was, after all, you were you were instrumental in facilitating the uh, the the donation of an egg to a muggle like myself. So obviously, you're gonna stay you're gonna stay in the loop. You don't need to worry. I'm excited. I've got my magic candle. I've got my egg, my Ukrainian iron belly egg. Let's see if we can hatch this puppy. Okay, I'm gonna go put this down. I'll be right back. Rachel, you need not worry at all. <laughs> um, like I said, I'm going to keep you very much updated. But uh, yeah, in the coming weeks, perhaps the coming months, like I said, I don't know, never done this before. I'm going to hatch that egg. I'm going to give it a shot. We'll see what happens. Um, it's been lovely. It's been a lovely object sitting on my shelf. I, I really love looking at this thing. I don't like to keep a lot of stuff on shelves usually. Like that's not, I, I don't have a lot of stuff that I like to just sort of look at. This definitely qualifies. Um, and I wish the uh, the green screening didn't make it freak out quite so much. Here, as a matter of fact, let me turn off the green screening for a second so you can get a good look at this. Um, let me, there we go. Okay, now how does that look? Okay, that's a bit better. But as you can see, it's got this great this great, uh, you know, silvery iron bottom and uh, this fantastic chromatic, you know, uh, or um, like blue gunmetal coloring on top. This is one of my favorite just objects that I have. So, I thank you very much. Let me uh, get back to normal here. Zoop. All right. Yeah, Rachel, don't you worry. I'll keep you very updated. Um, Austin asks, what Quidditch position would you like to play? Oh, boy. Back in the day, the day being, of course, middle school, I played quarterback. Um, I had... My arm was pretty accurate, but it was not... Um, uh, I, I, I didn't get a ton of distance. I think I would make a good, um, I, I think I would make, um, oh, good grief. I've forgotten the positions. I forgot. No, I haven't. I've forgotten the one position I need to remember. Um, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, Alicia, Katie and, uh, Angelina position. Um, I, I think I would be best at kind of handling the quaffle. I think I would, 
Uh, I've got slow Compton feet, which wasn't great for my sort of footwork, which is important as quarterback. Um, but I've got a broom underneath me. I think it would be good. I think I could, like, like I said, I can remember all the other positions. A seeker. I don't think I would make a great seeker. I'm, you know, I'm, I move a little slowly. Um, I should say I'm, I'm a little less agile. Um, I think you need to be more so for a, to be a, a keeper. Um, for seeker, I don't think I'm streamlined enough. I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. Um, and for beater, I could make a decent beater, I think. Um, but hitting stuff with a bat was never my gig. It was always throwing something with accuracy. So I think uh, I would be best there. That'd be my best placement. Not keeper, no. Um, is it chaser? Chaser, yeah. I think I would make a good chaser. Um, because I think, uh, like I said, I've got a pretty accurate arm. And then B, I think my size would help me not get quite so, you know, battered by, um, by the, uh, the bludgers and the, uh, the beaters who hit them. Any, any, any position where I would get to, uh, utilize my throwing arm. I think that's where we'll land tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. You're wonderful people. Uh, I really appreciate you sticking with it. Um, it's been a year, Rachel. Um, I know you've got a snowstorm right now. We will absolutely uh, you know, make sure we get connected about this. We have to coordinate. I might need you to uh, liaise between me and Hagrid himself, if at all possible, um, about some tips and tricks. Um, uh, and, you know, perhaps talk to Charlie Weasley. Uh, this could be a long process, and I've, I'm going to need all the help I can get. So we'll stay in contact. Don't you worry about it. And uh, Austin, thank you for joining us tonight. Anybody else watching, I appreciate it. Have an excellent week, and I will see you on Sunday next. Same time, same place. Okay. You're wonderful people. Have a wonderful night.